Some of these are a little bit longer. Um, do not worry, we're not going to be here for hours upon hours upon hours looking at every single thing of every little verse as much as I would like to do that. Uh, I won't subject you all to that either. Um, first off, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Um, really happy to uh, be able to gather with you guys today. And uh, you, if you have your Isaiah book on the cover, here we are. It looks something like this, right? It says, despair to hope. So in a very kind of unmother's Day-y kind of thing, talking about despair, that's not super like Mother's Day flavor thing, is it? Um, the feeling of despair is something, even though we don't like talking about it, it doesn't feel super great to talk about it, it's something that we all experience, something every single adult um, has felt in their life. Despair is something more than just feeling sad or just feeling slightly down. Despair is like the lack of any kind of hope. It could be a particular situation, uh, it could be um, a particular kind of moment in your life, but it's a, a lack of uh, a removal of any kind of hope. It could be like in a relationship that is broken down. You cannot see how, the, 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 how you and that person are going to work the thing out, and you just don't know what to do, and there's really not much to do, and you just feel despair. Or it could be a job where either your boss or the job itself or whatever it is, it's just like it's so horrible and difficult, and you just... When you think about it, your shoulders just drop. You're like, oh, yeah, that thing. You just, you, you hate it. And, but you don't know any way around it. That's despair. There's all kinds of different, there's all ways of looking at despair. Um, the one we're going to focus on this morning is the kind of despair that we make for ourselves. Self-made despair. When we get into hopeless situations, not because of what other people have done or just because of the situation is broken, but because of things that we've done, our own things that we've done where we are responsible for the despair we're in. Like, we take others for granted, but then we moan that everyone takes us for granted. Or we aren't generous with our time and emotions and then wonder why we feel alone. We don't take the time to read and pray, and then we wonder why we feel anxious and aimless. We sin. We bring our own brokenness into this world, and we shake our fists at God. And when we die, we have this huge burden upon our back that we never want to give to Jesus because we're so obsessed with ourselves, with this toxic individual life that we're, we're mired in. Look, all those things that we mentioned, they're all uh, also what the people in Isaiah's day were struggling with. Those sound like very modern problems. They're not just, not just modern, they're human problems. There's something that were going on in Isaiah's time that was written, you know, thousands of years ago to people who we don't know in a place probably none of us have ever been before. Also to what's going on now, what will go on Monday, what will go on maybe later this afternoon. We have maybe progressed in some ways as humanity, but really we are the same humans with the same kind of problems. And regardless of whatever kind of despair you have been through or brought upon yourself, and all kinds of despair, Jesus has come to give you hope. That's what Isaiah is about. Hope being delivered in the context of despair. Not just now, but not, not just like today or tomorrow, but in the future, forever. And what um, we're going to look at, what God is telling us here in chapter 43, are uh, these kind of main things. We're going to see how first, how God does give us hope. And then we're going to learn about how our hope is in his presence, his, him being present with us. And then we're going to look and see how this hope isn't something that we get by working really hard for it. It's actually a gift that God gives us. And may also say, too, on the bottom of the slides there, you have this website. If at any point you have a question of, like, I don't understand that, or I disagree with that, or can you say more about that, um, go to that website. It's anonymous. You can bring it, bring it in, and after we're, I'm done with the sermon and pray, I'll check and see if um, there are questions or if I've just explained everything perfectly. 
which is what I assume love will do, of course. Um, so uh, let's get to this first thing, that God gives us hope. God gives us hope. Before we get into hope, the reason that this all matters is because of the context. If you are having a fantastic day, uh, it's, it, having hope doesn't matter as much as if you're having a horrible, miserable, despairing kind of day. If, if in your despair you can have hope, then that's actually something that matters a lot. In fact, it might seem in the chaos of, of despair, it might seem like hope is like impossible, or you can't even imagine it for yourself. But here we're told that even when it does seem impossible, God gives us hope. And in, in Isaiah, in these chapters in Isaiah we've been looking at, Isaiah 43 and all the way up to, even to, to chapter 55, um, our audience is facing this immediate threat that this outside nation called Babylon is going to come and take them over and get to like, steal them away from their home, home culture, home country. Um, and, and the Israelites are going to not be living in Israel anymore. They're going to be living in this place called Babylon. They've got to restart their life. They've got to learn new language, learn new cultures, learn new jobs. They basically start from zero. They're not going to be able to bring very much with them as they come. So they don't have a home anymore. They're, they're basically like refugees. This is, what, this is the context that the Israelites are facing. That sounds despairing. I mean, you think of someone who's a, a refugee from Ukraine now. That, that's a despairing situation. And it's exactly in that kind of situation that God says he will give us hope. I wonder, um, if you think of that kind of situation, it's not too far off to uh, understand why the metaphor of drowning is a thing here, right? Uh, in verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they're not going to sweep over you. Those, those kind of really difficult situations, we feel like we're drowning. I, surely you have all been in that situation before. You've just even maybe described to someone else. How are you doing? Uh, okay, it just feels like I'm kind of drowning because there's no way out. And yet, while facing this disaster, and in their despair, the Lord says, you're not going to drown, and you won't be burned up. See, God really knows them. In verse 1, uh, God says, I created you. I formed you. These words are the same words that God um, uses in Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about creation itself. Like, God has formed us. He knows who we are. God tells his people that he has redeemed them. Uh, this is the idea of uh, caring for a relative or a very close friend who, uh, who um, the, like the main breadwinner in their family has died, and so they have no way to make money. And so what this uh, friend or relative will do is he'll bring that family that can't make any money and can't, therefore can't eat, bring them into their house and, and, and care for them. This is how God talks about his people. He has redeemed them. And verse 4 says that um, God's people are precious, and they're honored in his sight. And also says, I love you, to his people, who are completely disobedient. The reason why the Israelites are in this situation is because they're not following God. We'll get to that in a bit. So in verse 5, God says he's going to bring together their children who are far away. God, what he does, what God loves to do, is to gather people who are scattered, either out there um, or within, and gather them to himself. God gathers the scattered, and they will all be, all these people who God is talking to now will be scattered soon, but God will gather them back to himself. God gathers people to himself. And then in verse seven, uh, we see everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Who's this promise for? Everyone who I created and made who know my name. See, verse seven is very similar to verse one. That forming thing, that creating thing, that kind of goes back to this idea of God intimately knows who we are, like from, from scratch, before we even knew who we were. 
See, God cares a lot for his people. He loves them, and part of that love is to give them hope when they need it, especially when they don't deserve it. Now, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into getting into some of the specifics of this hope because there's a lot of interesting things going on in this chapter. Um, but let's not first let this big idea pass us by, that God gives us hope. That's an amazing thing. We shouldn't take that for granted. That's, that's amazing. God actually gives us hope. And hope is something that we look toward. When we set our eyes on something, like we walk forward. I know like if, if I'm walking with Colin, if he's walking, looking over here, he's going to be walking over here, and then he'll be like kind of walking over here. I learned this um, maybe like the hard way. When I was, I used to do a lot of mountain biking at uni. And when you're on a mountain bike and you're on a trail, there can be gaps, there can be like logs, there can be all sorts of things. And the temptation on, when you're on your mountain bike is to look at that gap because you will, if you hit that gap wrong, you'll fall off and die or, you know, scratch yourself or hit your head or whatever. Um, so but, so you're, you're really concerned about the obstacle. But if the more you look at the obstacle, the more likely you're actually to fall over. The best way to handle obstacles on a trail when you're on your mountain bike, when there's all sorts of things going on, is to look forward. Because if you're looking forward, uh, that's where you're going to end up. If you're looking down at the obstacle, that's where you will end up. And I think the same thing metaphorically happens in our lives. When big, massive obstacles come in our lives, we tend to obsess over them. And you know, rightfully so. I, I, we all get that. Uh, because this big, huge thing that's coming to get me, if I don't focus on this, then I'm not going to be able to conquer it, and I'm not going to be able to go forward. The problem is, none of those things will keep us on the path that we need to be. Because we're looking over here, we're looking over here, and that means we're moving over here, we're moving over here, instead of what we need to be doing is moving this way, moving forward. Setting our eyes on God allows us to hear words like this, I am giving you hope. If we're looking at our obstacles all the time, we're not going to hear that from them, we hear the opposite. We hear, I am giving you despair, I'm giving you troubles, I'm giving you, you know, a broken arm if you're on a bike or something like that. Looking only at the obstacles is what leads us to despair, is what leads us to anxiety, depression, anger, frustration. It, it doesn't relieve our despair, it compounds it like compounding interest over and over and over again. But even in all of that, God tells us, I am giving you hope. Bad things are going to happen, yes, but there is a path of hope through it. There is a way of hope through the obstacles. And remember, all the difficult things in this chapter is the obstacles that we create for ourselves. It's not like you can't blame it on someone else. You can't blame it on kind of the brokenness of the world. This is stuff that we have brought on ourselves. And if that's true, that even in our best intentions, we still put obstacles in our paths, then that's really good news that God gives us hope, gives us a way through. Knowing the God of hope in the context of despair has the possibility of creating a people of hope. That's an amazing thing. Now, we can't apply more of this to our lives today, but before we, get to do, before we do that, and we will, before we do that, we're going to um, dig a little bit deeper and learn about how God is teaching us about his hope here in this chapter. Um, there's a lot, and we're going to skin the surface here, kind of as we do every Sunday with Isaiah. We really, like anyone who's up here on Sundays, you have to kind of skim the surface because there's so much stuff going on. And I might say, if you're in a core group, which is like our smaller, small groups of like two to four people, same-sex groups, um, talking about the Bible and those um, go, Going through that, your Isaiah book might be a good thing to, to use for your core group because Sunday morning is never enough to get through all this. It's just kind of, just enough to scratch the surface. So, but, but we will scratch. Let's, let's scratch the surface. This next thing um, we're going to find out is our hope 
is God's presence. Our hope is connected to God's presence. And we see this actually right from the beginning. If you look at verse two, it says, when you pass through the waters, God doesn't say, I will remove you. He says, I will be with you. That's a very interesting thing. You would think he would say, I'm gonna keep you or protect you or not let, you, not let harm come to you. And he does say that. But the first thing that he says is, I will be with you. Verse 5, we're told to not be afraid. Why? Do not be afraid, for I am with you. There's something about God's presence being there that stops us from fearing, that allows us to go through things where we feel like we're going to drown. God is with us, and because of that, we can have hope. Now, there are two reasons why, or two reasons we get for in this chapter here, why God's presence is actually a good thing. Now, the first thing is about a relationship. God's presence with us is not a cold kind of standoffishness. It's not this like detached disciplinarian. I mean, it's not like God cannot wait to like smote us or strike us down um, or, or that uh, you know, he's kind of like cares about us, but only like just a little bit because he's busy with people who matter more, things like that. It's a close, actual, real relationship. This is what God's presence is. God's not a set of ideas. God is not a set of theological doctrines. Uh, it, God is not what we feel a God should be like. He is a person, and he's revealed himself very clearly in here. And even in the, whatever time we have this morning, in only one chapter of a Bible full of chapters, there's a lot of stuff here that we learn about who God is. He's, he tells us all sorts of things about himself. See, God is there at the beginning of our creation and doesn't leave at the first possibility of a problem. He he's not, like, leaving. He's not a, a deadbeat dad. When the waters come, when the fires start up, God doesn't leave. He's with us. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. And what does he choose to do? He chooses to stay with you as you go through these waters, as you go through the fire that you created for yourself. That's a good God. See, God knows you, knows everything about you, everything about you, and still wants to be with you. How many of us think, man, if, everyone, if anyone knew what I was really like, no one would want to hang out with me ever, Right? God knows that even more than you know yourself and yet still wants to be with you. To call someone by name, it says it in here that I, I'm going to summon, um, bring, um, uh, summon my children by name. Now, I've, I've never really summoned somebody before. I may have called someone before. But it says to call someone by their name. That's, that's knowing their true selves, knowing who they really are. And I think very few of us have the gift of people knowing our true selves in this world. But God does. He knows who you are. He has revealed himself in order for us to know him. And I wonder if we really take him up on that offer as much as we should. So there's this relationship that God has through his presence. But then also there's a rescue. God's presence invites us in this relationship and we learn that his presence leads to our rescue. And what we have in this chapter is something that an Israelite would get immediately, that maybe not people in our context would get, unless you're a theological nerd like myself. Uh, there's a theme of Exodus going on here. And to quickly explain, uh, the Exodus was something that happened a long time ago, um, even to the people who lived in, in Isaiah's time, it was a long time ago for them. Uh, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites because those pyramids are not going to build themselves. You've got to get some slaves to build those pyramids. And so they uh, enslaved the Israelites, and after time, God's people asked to be rescued. Eventually, God's people finally cried out to God, please, won't you save us? 
and God heard, and what he did is he worked through one of them, Moses, to confront Egypt's ruler, who was called Pharaoh, uh, to tell Pharaoh to free the Israelites so they would be free to worship God. That was the reason for their freedom was so they could worship God. And after some harrowing plagues, if you've seen, you know, the Prince of Egypt or whatever kind of, you know, pop culture thing is going on there, um, the Israelites were eventually freed. But fickle Pharaoh, even after freeing them, still wanted the Israelites for himself. I mean, slaves, I wouldn't, I mean, it's better than cheap labor. It's free labor. And houses need to be built. Economies need to be propped up. And people are going to be on the back of slaves all the time. So Pharaoh's like, you know what? Maybe that wasn't a great idea. So what he did is he sent an army after the Israelites. So the Israelites have left Egypt. Uh, thinking that they're free, but now they come to this Red Sea, a large body of water. Like, well, maybe we can go around it. Oh no, what's behind us? Pharaoh's army now is chasing after us. So God's people, you thought you were freed, now you're either, you can either drown or be destroyed by an army. That sounds like a very hopeless, despairing kind of situation. And what God does then is he opens up the sea, allows the Israelites to walk through on dry land, and the Egyptian army is like, well, that's weird, but I guess we'll keep on doing that too. And so as the Egyptian army tries to pursue the Israelites, who are now on the other side of the Red Sea, God closes the water up over the Egyptian army. And so God's people are, are free to be able to worship him, and the Egyptian army is drowned. Now, that story is something to, as an Israelite, uh, would be part of your identity. You would know that story inside of out. You, you would hear that story being told over and over and over again. You would tell people over and over again. You may not be able to read or write, but you would know that story inside. It was a part of, what you, it was a part of who you are. So there's some things that come up in these verses here that would immediately kind of click in your brain. Oh, this is, this, Isaiah here is writing about the Exodus in some ways. Um, like for example, in verse three, there's a line. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is the title God used for himself during the Exodus. This is how God presented himself to Moses and to Pharaoh. This is how God um, represented himself. Uh, and then obviously the drowning, and the, oh, the, like that's a part of the thing too. But then um, look down at verses 16 and 17. This is if you're like a little bit thick uh, Israelite, and you're like, I don't know, is this really about the Exodus? And then God's like, okay, I'll make a plane for you. This is what God says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and lay there never to rise again, extinguished up out of, like a wick. They're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now it really is about the Exodus. So all these kind of themes are going on. What God is doing here in this chapter, and what he actually does a lot in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, is uses the Exodus as a spiritual metaphor for the way that he likes to work. It's like a, like a paradigm, like a system of, of, of God describing how he brings his rescue in. Uh, see, we hear the story of the Exodus, and we might think, oh, it's a nice, inter- nice interesting story, maybe I'm going to make a cool film or whatever. But that's completely removed from my experience, because I am not a slave, I don't live you know, in these ancient kind of times, and that also sounds like miraculously amazing, but also like kind of weird. This would be the same for the people in, in Isaiah's time. Like, they were not slaves under Egypt. They were, they, had, they were just as removed as we would have been. But the story was a part of their spiritual experience, their spiritual formation. And what God uses it as a working metaphor for all of us. And we all fit in here. Because we are facing an enemy. An enemy whose goal is to keep us from experiencing the freedom of worshiping God. That's who our true selves are. To keep us as slaves. And often, that enemy is within us. God has freed us from our slavery, but even as we are running to him, this enemy is still pursuing us. And at times, it feels like 
Maybe we're caught between a sea that's gonna drown us or this impending army that'll eventually like take us over. And in, that, in those situations, we feel it. We feel squeezed. We feel crushed. That's a hopeless situation. And this is where despair can set in and take over because we don't see a way out. And so I wonder, as we kind of use that to shape our imagination of how God works, I wonder in your own life, in your own heart, where have you maybe kind of given in to that despair, not believing that God's going to rescue you? Not believe that God's actually present. Not, that God, not, not believe that God actually really does want that kind of relationship with you. As you get to that place, even just for a moment in your own heart, as you get there, we get to hear these words from God, who's our good father. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, this God is making a way through the wilderness. It's what he does. These are words not just to people who lived a long time ago. These are words to us right now, today, even as we sit here. There is a way through it. God, present in our lives, gives us hope. This is something that we look forward to, yes, but it's also something we get to experience now. See, in verse 19, God says he's doing a new thing, and we've heard this a few times, right? We've had this kind of theme a few weeks. And the way that this new thing is described as a spring coming out of dry land, like even now, the wilderness that we all walk through, that we contribute to, if we're honest with ourselves, this kind of barren spiritual wasteland, like some kind of post-apocalyptic spiritual landscape, there is a way through it, and he is making a way when we're present with him. Not what we're doing and what we think is right, our own eyes, it's what we think and how God has told us to, to act. And for the same reason the Israelites were freed from the Egyptians, we get the same thing. At the end of verse 21, um, all of this, like, the, the, um, this is, a, uh, you know, we destroy the enemy. Um, don't think about the former things. Verse 21 comes, the people I formed for myself, these people God really cares for. There's a reason here at the end, that they may proclaim my praise. The same exact reason God saved the Israelites, that they would proclaim God's praise, is the same reason he, he saves us, rescues us, that we may proclaim his praise. And not just sing on a Sunday for like an hour or whatever, but actually our lives would be those that would resonate with God's glory, with God's praise. The God of the old Exodus is the God of our new Exodus, saved from despair, saved to hope. And as amazing who this God is, and what he's done, still, we don't always chase after him, right? That's all of us, like, that's where we're all in that same boat. This kind of hope, this kind of relationship, this kind of rescue is something that only God can do. Only God's presence leads to life in this way. And he makes it clear in verse 11. He says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior, no real hope in the rescue that we need other than God himself. See, God is inclusive in his invitation, but exclusive in how he works. And he has these verses that kind of call out how lame our idols are. These blind and deaf things that we spend all our time and money and attention on that make us blind and deaf. They deaden our senses and they prevent us from being fully alive. There is an utter futility in using them as a substitute for God, and yet we do it all the time. When life is chaotic, we might tend to control Sometimes a job is really good for that. Organizing family life can be good for that as well. Careers and families are very good in themselves, but also work as really good, which mean horrible for us, God substitutes. When thinking about hope, I think we often use kind of maybe very materialistic ways to offset our despair. 
a pension, a house, daydreaming about some kind of holiday, going on right move or, you know, whatever kind of holiday thing as well. Um, The right kind of savings or investment. If we get those things right, then we can have hope. But what about when bad stuff happens anyway, which it will? No amount of a perfectly ordered life will prevent you from experiencing suffering and despair. And really, ultimately, even if you lived like, you know, the most easy life on the earth, ultimately we all die. And what happens then? The problems we created for ourselves, that despair that we've added to over the length of our life, that darkness that we've brought into this world, that brokenness is going to make its way out. What happens when we die? The only hope we can have then is God's presence, making his way through our wilderness. With us when the waters come, when the fire blazes, seeing us to the other side. So we've looked at God giving hope and drilled down a little bit into what that hope specifically looks like here in this chapter, about God's presence, his, his relationship, and his rescue. Um, that, the last section here is, is kind of the question of who, who can get in on this? Uh, because God's presence is good news for the Israelites fleeing the Egyptians, but God's presence is not great news for the Egyptians. It was the opposite for them. I mean, God talks about enemies here who he's destroyed. So what does this look like? And ver- the last little thing we're going to look at is our hope is for people who don't deserve it. God's hope is for the undeserved. Uh, and the first thing to say, this hope is for those who don't deserve it. Lest we think we need to prove ourselves to God. And as good, churchy, religious people, that's what we think by default. We won't say that, of course, because we're good, churchy people. But we kind of think that in our hearts. Oh, if I do this and I show up here and I do these things, and if I do this enough, then I'm good enough and God's going to accept me. But it's just not true. Uh, verses 22 to the end of the chapter talk about how God's people don't do the things they ought to do. We don't. That's no surprise. We, don't, we know we don't do that. The world knows that sometimes maybe better than we do. God has not burdened them at all, and yet they don't seem to really be bothered. Like God's really relieved their suffering. And they're like, oh yeah, that's cool, thanks. I guess I kind of assumed that was gonna happen, God. In fact, what they've done instead is burden God with their own sins. God hasn't burdened them, they've burdened God. Remember the despair we're talking about, that self-inflicted despair. So the obstacles in our path that we need rescuing from are the ones we created for ourselves. These are our own sins, the, things, the darkness, brokenness that we bring into this world. How can those who have not called on God experience his relationship and rescue? How in the world does that work? The people that, that God loves, that he's formed, that he's created, that he says well, he'll be with and he's going to rescue them, are these same people who are kind of like these ungrateful, spoiled little kids. What's the deal? Verse 25 um, has this kind of insane, it's, it, it's an insane verse. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. In the midst of listing how his people have failed him, from the very first man, from Adam, to the priests of the day, like, fail, 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 fail. And you read the Old Testament, it's a story of people failing over and over and over. The heroes of our faith are complete, really, moral failures in many ways, spiritual failure, failures in many ways. And yet God still says something like verse 25, I even, I, even I, will blot out your sins for my own sake and remember your sins no more. How in the world can God do this? It kind of almost doesn't make sense. The path to forgiveness, to a relationship with God, to his rescue, is on him. He says, for my own sake. And this story is unfinished without knowing about Jesus. In fact, this story, chapter 43, cannot be true unless Jesus 
comes and makes it true. There's a theological word that describes one of the things going on when Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, and you might have heard it before. Maybe you know what it means. Maybe you don't. As this word atonement. When Jesus died on the cross, this word atonement happened. A way to understand that, I've heard, I, I can't remember who I stole this from, but lots of people have stole it, so I'm going to steal it from whoever I heard it from last. Um, atonement basically described as at one There's a separatedness, and then atonement, what an atonement does is it brings two things together that should have been together to begin with. When Jesus goes to the cross, because God is burdened by our sins, Jesus didn't have any sins. He's burdened by our sins, yours and mine. And he takes that burden of our sins on him, takes it with him. He goes under the water. He drowns. He goes through the fire. He gets burned up. He gets scattered. Our sins get blotted out because Jesus was blotted out. And in this atonement, we're now at one with God. So that relationship can actually happen. That forgiveness can, can be true. Formerly separated, no different than the Egyptians who were thrown into the sea, now brought to God. Only through the atonement, through what Jesus did on the cross, can God's presence be a good thing. Otherwise, it's a very bad thing. It's a very scary thing. It's a horrible thing. Nobody here deserves God's hope or his forgiveness, and yet everybody here needs it. So the question is, where are we with him? And what parts of your heart are with him or against him? We're sometimes quite scattered within ourselves. And the only way to be gathered together, the only way to know God and the way we were meant to is by surrendering to the God who is with us, this God in this Bible. In my um, not-so-distant past, uh, I had the experience of making music and, and actually getting paid for it. Here's a... Um, one of our many promo shots behind us. Um, I recorded lots of albums in the past, either with myself or with other people in the studio or our own studio or solo projects or band projects, all sorts of things. Um, got radio play and magazine features, flying to different cities to play festivals, having a marketing agency, where all this kind of stuff is great. Oh, no. Uh, oh, I don't know. It's gone. Oh, sorry. Uh, don't know how in the world that happened. Um, uh, where am I? Oh, I should do, I am the, well, there we are. I'm the most beardy one. I'm that guy there. Um, yeah, the more hair, that's who I am. Um, uh, I mean, the first time that I got to hear uh, one of our songs on the radio was amazing. The first time that people were at our shows and singing along, and there were people who we didn't know, to like all of our songs, it was, it's an amazing feeling to have. It's great. Uh, I mean, the last solo album that I released, we were able to basically fund the majority of our move here from the, from the U.S. Now, in all of this, though, as a band or as a solo, whatever, there's always this chase after a record deal. Like, there's kind of like this like, utopia of like, oh, we're going to make it. What does make it mean? Make it means getting a record deal. And then you find out what a record deal is. A record deal is basically just a loan from a bank, really. I mean, the, the record company functions like a bank, and they have relationships and connections to sell albums. But they give you money, and you need to work for that money. And if you don't work for that money, then you have to pay it back one way or another, either by you know, working even harder or by selling even more. Here's the thing. When you're a band, you work really hard to get a record deal, and then you get a record deal, and you're like, oh, no, we haven't made it. Now I actually have to work way harder to do it. You've paid for it to get the deal, and then you keep on paying for it because there's, they're going to make money in the end, and artists 
generally don't make money in the end, that's how it works. Artists are very bad business people. You work really hard at the thing to get it, and when you do, you have to work even harder to keep it up. A record deal comes with the idea of something good that you deserve. You work for it, you pay for it, but with God, of course, we get something better, something good that we don't deserve. We didn't work for it, and we don't work for it to keep it up. It's on God, for my own sake. We don't work for it, we don't pay for it, and we don't work to keep it up. And that's what this word grace means. Grace is getting a gift that you didn't deserve. And that's what we see at work in chapter 43. The only way this can be true is if God is gracious. And if, and if he came in the person of Jesus to take away our sins, to take away all the brokenness that we needed. And so what we bring, speaking of relationship, what we bring to a relationship, to that table, what we get to bring is our brokenness. We bring all of our burdens. And what God brings is hope. And if we get to now read Isaiah 43 in the context of what Jesus has done, which is how you read the, the Bible, is how Jesus taught us to read the Bible, which is, is a good person to learn from. How do you read the Bible, Jesus? Well, he taught it in Luke 24, he teaches people how to do it. If you read it through his eyes and through what he's done, um, then, then we read that we're rescued through our relationship to him. He has redeemed us. He's won us back to himself. We don't need to fear. He, we, that means we can go through the waters. And actually, he's going to be with us. He's been through deeper waters than we ever will be. He's been through the most difficult fire or uh, any kind of difficult despair more than we ever have. And Jesus has called us by our true names, and we get to be his. When we get to the times of despair that we created for ourselves, Jesus is with us. In fact, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. With us, our sin-burdened selves. He went through the worst despair, death itself, so that we never will. Because God, as Jesus on earth, has made a way through our wilderness, and that way is Jesus. He calls himself the way. As we surrender our undeserving, despair-creating selves to him, we get to find hope. We get to be known, truly known. We get to be rescued, even when everything else seems so completely hopeless. We're rescued through our relationship to him. This is true for us today, and this is true for us in all the times to come. And each week, we celebrate being rescued from despair as we look to the despair on the cross. Jesus' body and his blood were symbolized